Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over Hype podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at HOHThePodcast and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Hey, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Heart Over Hype podcast, your one-stop shop for health news you can use. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles, and today I have with me a very special guest, writer, educator, social justice advocate, and an absolute icon in the field of public health, Dr. Nancy Krieger. Dr. Krieger is a professor of social epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her work focuses on health disparities between demographic groups and the social structures that help determine those disparities. And I was fortunate to hear Dr. Krieger speak on a number of occasions while attending Harvard for my master's in public health. She is nothing short of amazing, so you are all in for an absolute treat. Thank you for being here with us, Dr. Krieger. To begin, how did you get involved in health disparities research? I've been interested in issues of social justice and health um, since college and before college. So my interests go back very, very far. Um, And that has been something that has just motivated my work since the beginning, basically. So it's a, it's, that's a very long answer. So I'm giving you the very short version because to tell you the full story would be very long, but it involves my work in occupational health. It involves my work in social justice. It involves my work in the uh, National Health Commission of Jesse Jackson's campaign for presidency in 1988 when I wrote his AIDS platform. It involves work in many different arenas that link issues of social justice and public health and then coming into it with the particular expertise of being an epidemiologist and what that means for doing the kinds of research that I do, as well as broader analysis that brings in a historical frame as well. My lived experience as a black doctor makes it obvious to me that I should not only care about health disparities, but I should be part of the work that eradicates it. It's mission-based work for me, but I fear that my expectation for others is too low. I don't expect people without a shared or lived experience to care as much as I do, but I do think that we share a collective sense of humanity and that we should all do a better job of caring about the problems that impact us indirectly. In your opinion, why should those without a shared or lived experience care about health disparities? So I think I'll answer that question, breaking it down to two different ways. One, because she prefaced it by being a medical physician, and that obviously takes a lot of time to learn what is necessary and to gain that expertise. So there's an answer to people that have expertise, and then there's an answer to people who just are living, period, regardless of what their expertise is. One thing that I always say to my students is that both expertise and experience matter. One has to go past the experiences of one's own life to gain expertise. You read widely in the literature and you understand what is affecting the health of people, period. And health inequities are a demonstrable fact in our society, in the US, and many other countries as well. So if you're actually going to be credibly doing work to engage with people's health and population health or healthcare, you actually, to have expertise, need to know and do something about health inequities. 
period. And so that's a part of gaining the expertise, which everyone can get. I'm a teacher and I believe that everyone can learn. That's the premise of my being a teacher. So from that standpoint, there's no excuse not to know and there's no excuse therefore not to care because the first principle of physicians is first do no harm and one does harm if one does not know about health inequities and how to work to try to change them to improve the health of one's patients and the population from which they come. And then secondly, for people in general, health inequities are a moral abhorrence. And if you have values, they are important to address from that standpoint. But also what happens is that where you see health inequities is that they are around many of the leading causes of illness and death in our society. And so addressing them is a way and an avenue to making things better for everyone. So they matter unto themselves first and foremost because they're unjust, they're avoidable, they're in principle and preventable. That's why they are health inequities and that's wrong. And one should care about things that are wrong to make them right, period. But also there is the point that, again, if you think about things, say, for example, environmental racism, or you think about COVID-19 right now, the problems that are leading to widespread community transmission are ones that end up having repercussions for everyone, even as certain groups are being hit harder first. As you mentioned, we're in the midst of a pandemic, but some have said we also have to contend with the second virus, the virus of racism, and more pointedly police misconduct. Historically speaking, neither of these issues are new, although for many of us, this is the first time we've experienced these events, at least to this magnitude. As we come to grips with the reckoning that's taking place in this country, can you give us some historical context on how the present day social gaps in our society came to be? Sure, let me start though with one thing. I would be careful about using the metaphor of the virus of racism because it makes it seem like it's a natural phenomenon. And racism is not natural. It is a learned, it has been grounded by scientific racism, but it is completely A, not natural, and B, should be eradicated. So I wanna, I, I'm very careful in use of metaphor. And I worry sometimes when I hear that one because it makes it sound like it's something that comes exogenous to people. People have created racist structures. Um, the histories of scientific racism, if you trace them, and this is where historical understanding is really important, go back to the 1400s, 1500s with regard to specifically two things. One was the beginnings of the European expansion, particularly Portugal to Africa and starting to take enslaved people and ship them and have a colonial enterprise that was dependent on transatlantic enslavement and how that started to feature into the um, discussions and then also the ideas that something is transmitted in the quote-unquote blood which got really codified during the Inquisition specifically in terms of attempts to make it clear that even if quote-unquote Jews converted were the conversos they somehow still didn't qualify and being exempt from the reach of the Inquisition. So there's long complicated histories that are really important to understand that end up having worldwide implications and there are other variants of the kinds of racism that are seen from uh, frame not from just the European perspective. There are things in many other countries, Japan, China, others as well, but they do have a common history of trying to say that there is something biologically distinct and different about certain groups of people which justify having social hierarchies. And this can be repeatedly demonstrated to be fallacious, but that's a much longer argument. 
but the understanding of the history means that these aren't arguments we're only encountering in our times. What's happening is we're encountering the versions that are in our times. So we are always having to deal with the current context, but understanding its historical precedent. That's important because it means that you can understand that this is not the first time these arguments have happened. For example, concerns about, you mentioned at the very beginning, police misconduct. There were incisive reports in, back in the 1930s in New York City about what were called quote unquote race riots that were started by counts of police violence that, that suggested reforms very similar to what's being proposed now about shifting investment of funds from policing to more social services, to better housing, to the kinds of needs that are not being met. And so when you know that, to me, it's not, it's helpful because it gives you a ground to understand that the problem is not that people don't have ideas, the problem are what the political obstacles are, and then what does that take to try to change things. With regard to the current rounds of health inequities, there's two things going on. One is that since the 1980s, we've been in a period that some um, that are effectively in many ways backlash to the many progressive gains in terms of social justice and economic justice that came from the 1960s and 70s. And so there's been an increase since the 1980s, as is very well known and very well documented, an increased tendency towards um, supporting policies that lead to the undermining of the welfare state in the United States that's done in very racialized terms that leads to greater concentrations of private wealth, more tax cuts for the wealthy, more rewards for private realm and less for the public. And those exacerbate health inequities because they, and the other part that's been crucial to that is a very strong emphasis on deregulation. And deregulation actually translates to the gutting. We're seeing it at a hyper speed now under the current administration, for example, of environmental protection laws with the EPA was established in 1970. And the regulations that were passed were very important in reducing air pollution, which is a major cause of killer, and is disproportionately concentrated in uh, communities of color and lower income communities. So the attacks on regulation, the attacks on public health regulation in particular, are part of what is behind the attempts to uh, reduce the role of the state to the only functions it has is effectively uh, protecting national security and private wealth. And that's a very explicit agenda. And then that has all kinds of implications for health inequities. When you discuss the implications, I can't help but think about my own experience in public health, where it is painfully clear that structural racism and the trauma borne out from it has changed people. It's changed people mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually, but it's also changed us physically. Can you speak to the social and cellular pathways underlying the embodiment of racism? Yes, and I also want to emphasize, though, at the start, I mean, it's both that there's the great tolls exerted, and then there's also the wondrous ways in which people have resisted, found strengths, and stood up and made change. And to me, those are always two parts of the story that need to be told together and can be told together through the stories that bodies tell. So a framework that I use very much is one of, from the ecosocial theory of disease distribution that I've been working on developing since the mid-90s, is one of embodiment. And embodiment is a very active process. It's true of all living organisms. If you're not embodying, you're dead. It's very simple. Um, and if similarly, if you're not behaving, you're dead. I mean, it, or, or inorganic in the first place. And so the idea behind embodiment is that we always take in our societal and ecological context. And we embody it literally, biologically. We integrate it. Our bodies integrate all the time what all our experiences are. We may want to parse them out into one thing or another, but our bodies don't do that. It comes in all together. And that changes us. And it changes us um, biologically. 
and what's important, and that can be for good or for bad. So healthy context, equitable context can lead to good embodiment and adverse conditions can lead to bad. But the basic point is if you're alive, you're embodying. And it suggests that the changes that matter are what's driven exogenously. It's not coming first and foremost from within the organism. It's what the context is of the organism. And that also people especially, but other, other uh, living beings as well, can also shape the context in which we live. So the arrows go in both directions, not necessarily equally. And so, but people can change things. So for example, we've done work showing that with the abolition of Jim Crow, the uh, major gaps in infant mortality among black communities living in the Jim Crow South versus the also with racial segregation, but in a different regime, Jim Crow, uh, the North decreased and almost vanished. Even as in both groups, they were higher than the white counterparts. So those speak to both you can make change and there's more change to make. And so I think that in terms of some of the kinds of pathways of embodiment, I mean, it can be all different kinds. It can be about adverse exposures in the environment, literally air pollution, occupational hazards. It can be about lack of income and what that does and, what, and living in substandard housing or crowded housing. Crowded housing right now, for example, is playing a very big role in COVID transmission um, and the inability to self-isolate. Um, it can play a role in terms of what people do to alter their minds because they're unhappy with their circumstances in terms of different kinds of use of licit and illicit substances that are psychoactive. It can have to do with the kinds of food that people have available that's affordable and that's healthy in the areas in which they live. It can do with the kinds of transportation systems that exist. It can do with also ultimately somewhere in there, potentially the encounters that people have with healthcare providers, both seeking preventive healthcare and also if they are ill. But a public health standpoint emphasizes all the things that are going on above and beyond what happens within the specific healthcare provider interaction, even as that is also very, very crucial. So from a standpoint of prevention, you hope that people don't have to go to get healthcare because they're feeling bad, and you want that healthcare to be the right healthcare, but you also have so much more to do. And in the United States, especially, we are incredibly lopsided as a country in terms of where monies go so that the vast bulk, as in like 90%, 97% of funds expended on health go to healthcare and only 3% to public health. And we're seeing the impacts of what's also happened since the 1980s of the defunding of health departments is affecting the capacity to respond to COVID-19 in terms of literally reductions in staff, let alone not having sufficient upgrades to IT systems, computer systems, and all the rest. I've lived in an urban setting among black and brown people most of my life. And as you stated, now more than ever, we feel the impact of lack of public health funding, substandard housing, and lack of access to care. One question that I've been asked by members of the community is information on cost-effective lifestyle changes so the people can be better prepared for a potential second wave. This question normally comes after some commentary on mistrust of government and public health officials and how they've been let down in the past. What would you say to those people? How can they stymie the impact of health disparities, unequal treatment in healthcare, misinformation, and structural racism? I mean. There are different kinds of responses and it's a really heartfelt and genuine question and I really appreciate and respect it. Um, I think that it partly depends on what age you are. <laughs> you can do different things at different ages. Um, and But one of the things that I find heartening right now in terms of the new rounds of concerns and critiques that are being made around structural racism and saying that racism is a public health crisis is that more groups that have been previously single issue are coming together. So you will find that, you know, I'm finding 
major statements from, for example, just this is just one of many, but Sierra Club taking on environmental racism and structural racism and realizing that they have to stand up for people in, in urban contexts and also what that means around parks and recreation. So that's just interesting because you wouldn't have seen that before this past year. And so what I think is, is that there's never one right answer. And that what one can do as an individual is always fairly limited. What one can do as a community is more powerful. So finding out who else in your community, and it's also good for your mental health as well, to be engaged in groups that are trying to change one aspect, because you're never going to change everything. There are people that are focused on air quality. There are people that are focused on better transportation systems. There are people that are focused on parks. There are people that are focused on getting better food. There are people that are focused on getting interesting cooking classes. There are people now in Harlem, amongst others, doing um, community mutual aid that's uh, trying to deal with people that are running into food shortages right now. Um, and also working against evictions right now because of COVID-19. So there's never going to be just one answer. The point is there are many different things. As an individual, what would, I mean, it, you never want to just give quote unquote health behavior advice without taking into account the context in which people live. Telling people, for example, that, you know, they should, um, have a healthy diet without paying attention to what the stores are in their area, what the food availability is, what the costs are what their income is, is not really helpful. It's not as if people don't have that kind of information, although sometimes it's not as accessible, even that information as it should be. It's about the ability to translate that information into real action. I would say that there are things that have gotten better. For example, if you do look at mortality rates over time, with the exception of obviously HIV AIDS, which came on the scene and have been absolutely horrific for particularly um, young black men who have sex with men and others, um, and also injection drug users, that generally mortality rates have been going down. And for some, and that that's that, but they haven't been going down in a way that will reduce health inequities. So you always have to look at both pictures. What are the big trends in population health? There are things that are getting better, but also there are things that are not getting better in an equitable way fast enough. So I think it's, again, trying to keep balance perspective in that way. But people do, you know, just right now, specifically because COVID is so important um, and affecting so many people's lives, you know, the key things about having open windows, wearing masks, washing your hands, and keeping physical distance when you're in particular and not be and avoiding being with other people indoors except in your own homes is really key advice that everybody really needs to follow and it's important that there be masks be made available that if people communities that if there's not places to self-isolate because one lives in crowded housing to make demands on public health officials and government officials to increase the capacity for whether it's getting hotel rooms or whatever is needed to be able to make sure that people can live and deal safely with this pandemic. Also have adequate personal protection equipment at work and going to and from work and having that be provided by the employer. Recently, I've become more active in the fight against voter suppression, especially in light of the national election ahead. By the way, everyone, make sure that you're registered to vote, vote early, and vote wisely. Um, anywho, Dr. Krieger, what role, if any, does voting have on reducing health disparities? So it's, um, 
there is growing interest now, actually, interestingly, of political scientists. And there's a project with the Union of Concerned Scientists that's beginning to look at these questions of voting and voter suppression and also gerrymandering. So one initial study was compared what happened with the health trajectories of different areas in the country that at the 2010 census had, because that's when the redistricting happens, that's why there's so much concern about the undercounts that are underway now for the 2020 census, um, to look at areas that were gerrymandered more extremely versus not, and to compare their health trajectory to themselves compared to the ones that were less gerrymandered, and showing that health inequities went up and mortality rates were not good in the areas that had more gerrymandering. So it's really important, and also there's an environmental study that was shown that one of the roles of gerrymandering has been more to be able to let some districts, the wealthy ones that are being gerrymandered for that reasons and white ones, to keep things out, like for example, toxic waste sites. So gerrymandering is both, it's always about borders and who's allowed in and who's kept out and what's kept in and what's excluded. And so that becomes very important. Voter suppression in terms of, so it's both who you're voting for and whether the politicians are picking voters versus voters actually electing their politicians. But secondly, what it's also then about is what the resources are um, and what the ability is to influence the agenda by virtue of who is elected and what the policy priorities are. And I think we're seeing new rounds of new kinds of politicians that are embracing ideas of health justice and understanding that it's very it's cross-sectoral in terms of it involves many different agencies within government. It doesn't just fall under the realm of the health department and certainly not just the work of the, of the medical centers. I agree with those sentiments completely. Your research has spanned over three decades, so I posit that you've seen some successes and some failures in leadership. What are your candid thoughts on the current state of public health in America? Like everything else in America, it's very fractured. It's in need of repair. Both, it's inspiring to see how many public health people have stepped forward to take up the challenges of COVID and doing so often without adequate resources, whether in local or state health departments. It's important to, and also just through community organizations and trying to shine the spotlight on where the COVID-19 health inequities are because of the absolute travesty of the lack of good data from particularly the federal government on what has been the case with COVID and the uh, absolutely scandalous handling of the lack of racial ethnic data um, amongst and lack of socioeconomic data. So I think that you have to say, well, that's all part of public health too. So there's different, just as in any other sector of our society, there are people from various different perspectives that are engaged. And so there's some public health work that's been wonderful and some that's been inexorable and both are true. But overall, my sense is most broadly looking at the seminars, the webinars that the American Public Health Association has been sponsoring, their renewed emphasis, which they've had before on structural racism and health, really bringing an equity lens is becoming very central to the work of public health. And I think that there are many groups that are stepping up to make that be the case. But that said, there's also clearly major failures and there's also major failures in funding of public health. So all of that's part of the very messy picture that we're in right now. And there's not, therefore, going to be one simple answer. Thank you, Dr. Krieger, for those wise words. We learned a lot today. I'm certainly motivated to go out and do something. To our listeners, if you have any questions or comments on anything that you've heard today, please send me a message on Instagram at HOH the podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, wear a mask, and I look forward to our next conversation. See you next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.